0: So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation. I'm helping your business grow here on Startup Hustle. We talk a lot about startups. Today we're going to talk about startups and a circular economy. What is that? Stick around, because we're going to talk all about it and let you know what that means. Before we get started, I want a quick word and let you know that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by FullScale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. As mentioned, we're going to talk about startups in a circular economy. So as usual, I've brought in a subject matter expert This is the CEO and founder from one of Startup Hustle's top Chicago startups with me today, Gary Cooper from Reaply. Gary, what's up? Uh, Just
1: living the life. I'm happy to be here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I like to say that no one tells the backstory better than the CEO and founder of a company. I find that to be true and true and true again. So Gary... What is your backstory? What's up with Rapley? What do you guys do? And what problem did you want to solve when you started the company?
1: Yeah, I'm a trained scientist. So I did my PhD in neuroscience at Northwestern, trying to help find a cure for Parkinson's disease. I literally never, ever thought about being a CEO of any company, let alone a technology company. So like the the football field that I was on was never thinking about tackling a tech problem. But as it turns out in the lab, I just noticed that we had, you know, a very common trait amongst most systems, which is scarcity and surplus, right? So we had lots of stuff, material things, microscopes, chemicals that we weren't using in our laboratory. Meanwhile, there were labs literally next door on the same floor as mine that needed the things that we didn't, weren't using. And so, um, you know, maybe seven years ago, I solved that problem by, wait for it, sharing. Um, You know, I just said, hey, lab next door, do you want the stuff that we're not using? And they would say, oh yeah, that's great. And then as other people started to learn about it, I got a cart and I pile things on the cart and I would push this cart around our floor once a month and just redistribute things we weren't using. And um, I, after my postdoc, I went into consulting and in supply chain to help, you know, help large life science biotech companies with supply chain issues. And people kept emailing me from Northwestern saying, Hey, Gary, where's the cart? Where's the cart? And I would go, I don't know. I've not been there for three years. I don't know what you're really even talking about. But it happened enough that I thought, you know, what if there was like an internal almost like eBay that could bring this type of program to beyond a single point of failure, like a human and beyond something male, like pushing around a cart. And so that was kind of the birth problem statement of Ripley, which is trying to scale reuse and laboratory settings in uh, universities. And as we kind of got our footing, November 1 of 2016, we've just been following the onion of like, why isn't reuse something that's talked about more, that's scaled more uh, within communities, but also within businesses. And as it turns out, there's just no technology to do that. So that's what we're building. We're building technology at repeat to scale reuse. And reuse, I think is probably the most valuable and kind of cornerstone of the circular economy.
0: I think it was Jack Johnson and Curious George that said it best, reduce, reuse, recycle. Am I exactly, correct Exactly,
1: that's it. That's, that's, yeah. that's it. That's why I told my, my 94-year-old grandmother, always me, what do you do? And I say, "Reuse, reduce, reuse, recycle. We do reuse. That's all you got to remember. <laughs>
0: Well, so, so we talk about circular economy, the, the definition, like as in the textbook definition, says the circular economy or CE model offers a new chance of innovation and integration between natural ecosystems, businesses, our daily lives and waste management. Now, the problem that you're mentioning is actually something that's, you know, come up. I remember a few years ago, my cousin owns a concrete testing company and had all kinds yeah. of science gear and was asking me, uh, she she asked me, well, how do you think I could sell this? And she actually asked me, she's like, if there was only a marketplace for this, I could probably <laughs> do something with it. And, you know, I remember thinking, I was like, wow, she actually asked me about building one. And I said, well, I don't think you probably want to build a marketplace to just to sell the 10 items that you need to get right. rid of. But, but yeah, so, so as Ripley, and once again, for those of you listening, there is a link in the show notes if you want to go check out what Gary's doing over his company. And that's spelled R-H-E-A-P-L-Y.com. So is so replay, is it mainly an internal marketplace? Like it's for
1: it's like an it's uh like an intranet
0: inside yeah. of a company. yeah, that's is how we that
1: st- the sole purpose of it. Yeah, that's how we started. Uh, right, you're just trying to solve a small problem. So we did start trying to help internal reuse, almost like an internal intranet. Um, but as it turns out, the bigger picture, the bigger picture of reuse, the bigger picture of circular economy, uh, pretends that the material just stays in use, whether it's internal. So we took a back seat, like after our first year, uh, after we launched our product, and, and thought like, well, what we're doing really at the core, is we're taking asset management system software that has not been innovated on in about 50 60 years where Oracle dominates we're making that fun we're making it easy to use with the UI UX of like an online marketplace. So if we're selling an online marketplace as a service, right? That's basically what we're doing. Why not just connect these marketplaces? So that if reuse can't happen with internally to an organization. They can sell, donate or rent it to another organization that has our technology. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how it, it works today. Basically, there's X number of days that an item is used or sorry, viewed internally only. And then when an organization declares I don't need these items for our own operations, they can donate it, sell it, or rent it across uh, to other businesses in their community. And we kind of broker all of that through the platform. So it's really just a new day of asset management. We don't think of asset management systems as better, harder to use spreadsheets. We think of them of managing value flow, both when you're using it and when you're not. And so. Um, In fact, we call our tool an asset exchange manager, not even an asset management system. Because we think about really just being a hub of where that asset should go, whether it be internally or externally. So it's both today, and it's the only one on market that is both.
0: You know, someone that has a couple hundred employees worldwide, asset management uh, is a challenge. So does Reefly double as that? Is it like, do you... Say all right. So I technically I own hundreds of laptops because I with hundreds of employees, everybody has one sometimes keeping track of that. And some of that is, well, I mean, like you said, it's kind of spreadsheet driven and I'll 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 be told, well, we need we need a new laptop for the new employee. And then I go look at a spreadsheet and I'm like, we have 19 of them. Oh, well, well 15 of them are waiting for repair. <laughs> OK, well, there's still four that could be used. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll use those first. So, you know, it, 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 does Ripley start for the user as like, hey, let's
1: just enter it when we get it? Yeah. I mean, first of all, what you just described is literally what we hear from customers who have 50,000. So imagine the scale yeah. of a Microsoft you um, know, or a Defense Department like the, the U.S. Air Force is like how much assets they, they don't even know about. But um, exactly right. So we, we kind of have two plays. So we can be your asset management system. And we have that for a couple of big manufacturers that I have under NDA that I can't talk about, but their names rise with Oodle. Um, and, and then also we have our reuse program that will integrate to your asset management system if you love your asset management system and basically turn your record-keeping database, your asset management system, into something that your employees can go in and say, hey, I'm looking for a monitor. I'm looking for a laptop who has one to spare within our kind of organization. So it doesn't require single points of failure, like an admin or you as a business owner or leader, to have to like, go through who has what it's just an internal system. And by the way, this already happens, right? So employees are already I mean, it's like we always have this, this model, sharing the sugar, An employees going to walk to another employee's desk and say, Hey, you got a pen? You know, I mean, these are just really common things. But when you think about what remote work has done, in COVID, but also just the advent of just like spread out campuses, uh, international organizations. It's really hard for any one employee to know about all the assets that the business might own or have. So what we try to do is bring quote visibility to all the assets. And I think that's a key part of the circular economies. We can't make things circular if we don't know about them. Um, So really our first kind of job is to help the organization inventory everything that they own and put them on a platform that's digestible to any employee, no matter their training. And, and both of those, quite, quite frankly, were not accomplishable before Ripley in the market. And so we do that. And then we got to your, your earlier question, we take it the next step. And when the business says, hey, no one wants these things, let's find a new home for it that returns value to the organization, whether that be from a donation and tax write-off or whether that be like an actual resale. Um, and then we also obviously measure like waste diversion, Embody carbon um, reduction, and then of course cost savings, all in all in line with the tools. So you can really understand from an ESG perspective um, how reuse is in your organization.
0: Yeah, my number one expense is labor. My number two expense is equipment. <laughs>
1: yes. So. Yes. Yeah, I would I would, bet, I would
0: bet in a lot of these situations, too, the equipment that's not being used is sitting in the corner. It's dusty. Yes. Uh, it's been there for a while and no one wants yes. to throw it away because they aren't the official owner on it. So you're probably doing some favors with that. Yes. OK, yeah. so now when it, now so so we've identified a problem that was worth solving in any business. And especially in the software and tech business, has to solve, uh, you know, has to solve a problem. This was a pretty big undertaking, though, to try to, I would imagine, to try to cl- create the flexibility for the various kinds of equipment that companies have. Everything from, like I'd mentioned earlier, scientific testing equipment to a monitor or keyboards mm-hmm. or whatever. So, where did you start? Like, where? How do you, how do you just how do you how did you begin with all of this?
1: It's it's such a good question and just one of the things you said before, we just, we uh, just fortunately raised a series A. And one of the things one of the lines I use with investors was, you know, companies number one asset is their people, and their second asset, the assets, you know, (laughs) and there's so much people management software is very little good asset management software. But um, where we started was where I was. So you know, I've been in a lab my entire career. So since I was 18, um, you know, I've been in some type of scientific lab, both at undergrad, I spent two years at Northwest, I'm a faculty member there. And so we started building on high value items um, that you find in laboratories. And as it turns out, laboratories are really kind of good cross section of some of the stuff that you see in kind of non-manufacturing businesses. So whether it be furniture, specialized tables, uh, pressure tables, whether it be all the way to like chemicals, all the way back to specialized pieces of equipment like microscopes or or kind of complex glassware so we were already building a different type of category set taxonomy and form to kind of capture capture the intricacies of the things that you find in the lab and as it turns out when you go then uh, to other organizations that have r d as a component let's say like clorox but then they also have this whole problem with i.t asset management or furniture asset management it turns out our, our, our technology actually really, really easily scales for them. So, um, so it's actually been really, really cool to just see how what we created with the lab actually maps onto a predominance of the clusters that we go to. The, the one that's been kind of a standout has been working with the Defense Department. We never thought about ammunition and the things that you find in the Air Force. So that's, that's been something that we've had to kind of learn. But everything else has actually been kind of an add-on um, um, to the structures that we built when we first started the uh, launched the product.
0: Do you help visualize for the business or the you know whoever's managing this? Like, hey, look, this is how much stuff you moved. This is how much it saved. I find that, you know, when it comes to creating software products, especially things that all right. So, I'm the founder of Gigabook, uh, amongst cool. a couple other companies, and and I've learned that all right. So, for anywhere from fifteen to eight dollars, fifteen dollars a month, uh, and as little as eight dollars a month we can help you save a lot of money through efficiency. However, that's harder to sell. Like you can literally tell someone that you could increase their revenue by the same amount and then sell them the same solution for four times more. Uh, Even though saving money is making money, they're both the same on both sides of the table. Uh, How important was that visualization yeah. Uh, along the way to selling and creating something that while well, sustainable for yourself
1: and the fact that they were, re- they were renewing their monthly subscriptions. <laughs> yeah, no, it was so important. In fact, that's one of kind of our, our special sauces is kind of the the reporting section. Um, it's 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 in, it's in real time. And one of the other things that we've been able to do at the user level and not just the admin level, the reporting section is at the user level, we've actually gamified the whole platform. So as employees use, and get value off the platform. We give them points. We show them how much, you know, whatever environmental factor that is that they're reducing. And then each month we give them like a really, a cash gift card. So they get green for being green. But on the other, the flip side of that is, I think messaging was one of the things that we had to figure out early on to your point, that, um, you know, uh, reductions in cost centers essentially is not as elegant we've learned as uh, birthing new profit centers. So we, though we are one of our, our our leading KPR, our leading kind of value prop is to help reduce costs, we actually message that it, the same way circular economists do, which is turning what seems to be a cost into a way to driven that value. Um, in fact, that that term is actually sometimes called embodied value. that there's actually value in every physical thing. The question is who's the where's the end market for that thing that 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 you think is waste or that you don't need? And so those are the dots that we're trying to connect. But yeah, the messaging is so important because it is harder to sell a cost saving to than a revenue generating one, even though it's money in, money out, it's the same actually. So I'm
0: a huge advocate of all things that capitalize on excess capacity. And I'm going to give you an example after I remind you that today's episode of Startup Puzzle is brought to you by FullScale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Now, I am the CEO and founder of FullScale. And we like I said, I am a huge believer in in doing something with your excess capacity. So. Uh, With 200 software developers on staff, we, well, until recently, which we currently have a waiting list for for clients, but, you know, over the last few years, especially during the pandemic, we found ourselves with people that would be in between projects or usually anywhere from five to 10% of our staff wouldn't be doing anything. So they wanted to be doing something. They mm-hmm. wanted to be working. They wanted to keep and stay engaged, and we wanted them to. So we started investing our excess capacity and over the into startups, mm. and over the last three years, we have made one point one million dollars worth of of equity bearing investments into multiple startups here in the Midwest, and that was largely done with people that. We're in transition, although as some of that went well, we left some of those people on the assignments rather than moving them on to other stuff and have a portfolio company of seven different platforms now, um, which was in my opinion, a good, a good way to to create a circular effect. Because absolutely, while we, and the example of that is we actually created some clients for ourselves along the way because early stage businesses were out there raising money trying to get dollars so they could write code. Yeah. So we didn't write checks, we wrote code and it that's worked hilarious. out pretty well. And now we'll see that's still TBD in the end, but it definitely... So cool. Yeah. Now every business has excess capacity. I think it's Absolutely. fair to agree upon that. It means either people, equipment, it's mm-hmm. office space. Mm-hmm. Uh, office space is one that people ha- have quite a bit of now. And yes. uh, do you have do you have any plans with Ripley to expand into other forms of excess capacity and building upon that?
1: Yes, we do. And in fact, we actually. We've not talked about it to, to the degree that I w- would like, uh, where we're working a couple of our, our things on our corporate website, but we actually already have a client that uses our platform internally to exactly the use case that you just described. It's just let me detail that quickly for you. So imagine, let's just take a university, because again, I can't talk about this client in public, but imagine a university, You know, the skill sets of the scientist and engineer are so vast and diverse and so powerful so imagine being on one campus and needing to do an experiment and thinking who at this university can help me learn how to do it or could actually do it. And so one of our clients is using our technology to essentially tag expertise and then you can put your utilization that's open. Right. So if I am um, a pharmacologist and I can do this one experiment, I can put the experiment type. I can actually uh, put my open hours or when I'm not um when I'm not being used or when I'm not doing experiments, I could put the, the amount of money that it would take to book me. And now everyone in my company could search that experiment type or my university and find me and say, Hey, I want you for two hours to work on that experiment and I'll give you that money. So that's so important. When you get these big scaled organizations, it, again, it's just like a physical inanimate object. No one has any idea of who can do what and who's open. And so Um, Now, taking that outside the company into the community, how important was it to find retired or at-home nurses and doctors during the first kind of inning of COVID, um, which we worked on here in Chicago with the mayor and the governor of the state of Illinois? So whether it's within the company or whether it's just in a crisis mode when you're just trying to find people who are not being used who could be, uh, we do definitely think that there's more work there. And we've we, we had one or two clients that are currently using the technology under that use case.
0: So there's a few things. Thanks to the amazing planning and production and research team we have here at Startup Hustle. They they make my life easy and they've given me some business practices for sustainability. Uh, the first is be intentional about sustainability. I think we've been talking about that mm-hmm. for about 15 minutes now. Now, you mentioned earlier partnering with employees. And I always like to, to compare other people doing stuff to the call letters of the world's most popular radio station, which is WIIFM, which stands for what's in it for me. Uh, That is the frequency that everybody's tuned into. And I've learned that if you don't give people some kind of vested interest in stuff like this, Uh it usually doesn't go as well. Like, and for reasons that, I mean, it sounds, it, it is a little selfish on mm-hmm. behalf of the individual. You mentioned points and praise. Sometimes yes. that is more effective than anything else. I think overwhelmingly people want to to reduce, reuse, and, su- and re- recycle. Mm-hmm. Um, how important is that partnering with employees part of the success of your platform?
1: It's not only is it so important, it's literally our mission. So our mission at Ripley is empowering employees to save money and save the environment. So even though we sell to large organizations and their bosses, if you will, big admins, we actually implement and we empower the, the actual individual user at a company. Um, so, so, so one, it's embedded in our mission. It's embedded of in our inherent value. The other thing is, I don't think you can create sustainable workplaces without the employees. And third, employees want to be involved in these types of programs i i could cite three or four different big surveys reputable surveys that have looked at this but i don't need to do that if people just remember the harvard yale football game not two years ago where the student body basically protested during halftime and just sat there because of the investments that those schools were making in climate risky businesses if i think about what's been in the news about amazon in their kind of distribution centers and and sustainability there employees want to go to organizations who are thinking about if not already operating in a more sustainable workplace and they want to be involved in that now they can't they can't um, not do their work it has to be very low lift it has to be we think engaging and fun um, and personally incentivizing but I think any sustainable solution that's operated a big organization that doesn't involve the employees um, to me, it's fated to not actually work. Um, companies are made up of people. Those people have to be involved in the systems change that, to get you there. And that just requires, in my mind, easy to use, low fidelity technology that we think is engaging and personally incentivizing. You
0: know, every time anybody I've ever known that worked for a university, a state or government organization, or a huge company. Um, especially in labs and places like that procurement supply chain that was always a frustration if I only had what I needed I would imagine that a lot of, I would imagine that a lot of that frustration is satisfying when they're able to give something to someone else and make them not have to go through the process oh, cool. uh, I mean, it's, it, it really is, uh, it, it. I think, the amount of human capital that oh. gets left on the table
1: from people sitting around waiting for others to do something Absolutely. is amazing. So. How, how important it is to have local supply chains these days? I mean, we just saw what happened in COVID where when a global supply chain gets messed up, you actually need to figure out, do we already have the stuff to keep making things? Um, and so, yeah, totally agree with that.
0: Yeah, I've spent the last year talking to people about that that disruption on on many levels. I mean, people have. I mean, just things that you take for granted, like salt from Italy or something like that, and having to change recipes for food products and you know do a whole lot of different stuff. So, okay, so you mentioned that if it doesn't get scooped up internally, that there is a, a monetizable marketplace. How do, you, how do you deal with that? Because I, I mean, I would think as an employee, it'd be one thing to take thing, something from the eighth floor to the second floor. It's a completely different world. If I would got to bundle something up, uh, sell it, deal with saying that it's calibrated properly or that it works or right. that it hasn't had uh, milkshake spilled on it. So how does right. that part of, uh, of the sustainable economy at Reply work?
1: Yeah, so um, the way it works today at least is, let's say you have an organization of 50,000 people um, that you want to be involved in reuse, but you only have five people at that same organization that are authorized to sell on behalf of the business. So what happens is items kind of percolate around these 50,000 folks when they can't be used by them. These five people are authorized to sell it or rent it or donated outside the organization. We have partners, uh, if needed, who help us with the logistics of moving assets from point A to point B. Um, And then on the other end of that transaction, they're picked up by probably a very similar crew. So what we're trying to game change slightly is um, asset management has always been a very small team, manage a big portfolio on behalf of a big business. So we don't want to take that away. I mean, the business has to make really important decisions about the things they keep on the books and things they don't. What we try to do is empower the, the employee base to identify savings. It's really hard for five or 10 people to understand all the surplus assets, an organization of 50,000. So we try to push everything to those admins, empower them with the right tooling in an in market, where they can sell, rent or donate those things to, and then have the right logistical partners to help them fulfill the order. Um, so that's kind of how it works today. Um,
0: so, according to your website, you raised eight million dollars recently. Yes, yes. And didn't have to didn't have to ask if it was okay to talk about that one. It says <laughs> it says it right here in the banner. It says, "Reebly raises eight million dollars to scale the circular economy and enable businesses to take action against climate change." Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. That said, uh, we love talking about raising funds here. Largely, uh, we you know we started part of our now nearly six hundred episodes. Uh, episode two was titled Getting Funded Sucks, because it does. <laughs> yes. um, so how how did that process look for you? And what is some advice you could
1: give to someone that's raising capital right now? Such a great question. I could probably write a dissertation. So let me try to make an abstract. <laughs> um, uh, my, my last process was about six months. Um I talked to hundred and forty 153 investors, probably about three to four meetings of all uh, almost 100 of them. Um, so I literally was not involved in the company's uh, daily operations for six. I literally couldn't be um, the you know, I actually during the fundraise process, won a million dollar pitch competition um, put on by Revolution Ventures. Um, which was exciting. And at literally the next day, I got a ter- I got a term sheet. And then three days after that, I got another term sheet. So it's this weird trajectory, right, where you're out talking to investors getting a lot of feedback, you are um, trying to keep your spirits high, still believing in what you're doing, looking at your burn, <laughs> right, looking at when the when the clock goes out, potentially, And then boom, you have you have so much traction, and then you have an oversubscribed round. And then you're trying to say no to people who you were begging to be in the round. Um, But you know, really satisfied to have a tremendous lead investor in Indianapolis, who specializes in SaaS. And that's kind of the core right now of our business model. And then all the other investors, so all the entire syndicate uh, was made up of sustainability investors. So that includes, you know, folks from Salesforce, to Emerson Collective, and others. So I really wanted our cap table in a a diverse, um, in all kinds of ways, gender and racial, uh, diverse cap table. So I really wanted our cap table to, to speak the values I see, but also speak the value and the mission of the company, which is this elegance of the circular economy, which is a profit center, but with eliminating waste and it's kind of sustainable kind of um lens and, and that's kind of what our round was meant so i'm super excited about our new our new team members if you will
0: so i'm gonna i'm gonna back up because you said a couple of things that really got my attention here so we've said so many times on this show that raising capital is a full-time job so to confirm that was your full-time job for six Absolutely. months. Absolutely. And that, that's I, I, the real thing. That's why that it now. sucks. That's why it sucks for founders, because, you know, you get out there and you want to go do it. And, and it's like, I don't think any of us started our businesses to become a full time fundraiser. And then it's excruciatingly painful because so to back up, I tell people a lot, they'll, they'll call me up and they say, hey, man, I need I need or want some advice. I'm like, yeah, what's going on? oh man i'm having the hardest time raising capital oh you are well how many people have you talked to they're like i've talked to eight people. I'm like, you're like a hundred short of, of where you should be. I usually tell them, I tell, you're probably going to talk to about a hundred people to find mm-hmm. one. So mm-hmm. to back this up, you talked to 153. Yes. I have the I have the air table to show. <laughs> yeah. I, I believe I, and from you, I believe that most people will tell me that, but I believe that you probably do. So on, you know, on, on top of that, uh, a lot of those people told you no until the, yes. until they were telling you yes yeah so that's it, also
1: the way it goes. Absolutely. I mean you have to be I've the word no has become one of these words that um, I don't really hear anymore. I expect it, whether it be a customer, whether it be a partner, whether it be an investor. and the the when I'm in the fundraising mode, the level of how a no affects me, Becomes even less than it does today. Um, I, I see sometimes when you know my parents will say no to me, and I'll just keep going on pitching as though <laughs> so they never said anything. But you have to have the tough skin, um, and it's so different in a virtual environment. So our seed round, which I did in February of last year, completely erased the traditional way. Um, you're going into VCs and sitting in their offices, and then our A round, which I did seven months later, eight months later. I did completely virtually. So I had to learn, you know, being able to be on 17 zoom calls and hearing no 17 straight times and still bringing the right energy to the n plus one call each time. And so there's just like things that I learned just as a professional this time around that I think hopefully helps me with just general management of the the business that we're trying to build. But um, it's not for the lighthearted for sure. Um, And you gotta love your idea. Because It's not that people don't like you or that they don't like your business. They have a thesis, they have an underlying thing that they're looking for. Maybe they're only going to make two or three investments in a year. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really this kind of weird whack-a-mole game where you're just trying to find the one that pops up. And it's so you have to learn how to take things, not super personally, which is super hard when you're hearing people say no to the thing that you've given your whole everything for four or five years.
0: Yeah, I try to uh, try to advise people that investors say no, for a lot of different reasons. And 80% of the time, it's probably not you. And you don't realize (laughs) that like the fund could only have enough money left in it to make one investment, and Mm -hmm. they want to pick it well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes people just want to hear what everyone else is into, or what they're not into. And, and, you know, really in the end, you know, I think that uh, any entrepreneurs are ego driven while at the same time being well endowed with all the doubt they need. And <laughs> you have people lighting that on fire. And, and you know, it's uh, I, I, I think the some of the best advice I've given people is. Look, if people are telling you no, you don't. You know, it's not your job to sit there and convince them that you're right and they're wrong. Mm-hmm. That actually kind of that kind of drives the no to a little mm-hmm. louder volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just keep pitching the benefits, and you keep mm-hmm. going on, and make sure you don't burn that bridge because mm-hmm. oh, those same people that tell you no usually well are mm-hmm. often the first people that come back around and write the check. So I, I see a lot of people kind of. Kind of light the fuse on their way out the door and you know or I don't know you there's a zillion different ways but you never know who you're gonna end up doing business with so once again you heard it here first 153 now how many how many ended up writing checks um eight or uh, eight okay well that's a that's a pretty high completion ratio then because uh yeah like I said most people I talk to that have raised money are in the ballpark of 90 to 100 mm-hmm pitches and mm-hmm. i i think honestly that uh doing it virtually would be a little easier mm-hmm. on that level because when you are now you're in chicago so you probably have a few more doors to knock in we're located in kansas city there are minimal doors to knock mm. on here but there's still enough but you're kind of packing up that road show yes. and going and doing your thing yes. and You know, and you never know what's going to happen in the room. And sometimes the room is, the in-person thing is also a little excruciating because you get five people in the room and two of them are sitting there messing around on their phone. You kind of just want to look at them and be like, do you want to be here? Because I want to be here. But if you don't want to be here, you get the fuck out of (laughs) here. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes
1: that is. Who knows? I, it's, I, think, uh... I think it's definitely advantageous for founders to be able to raise virtually, um, for sure, especially to your point, like founders in the Midwest, founders in markets that don't have a high VC footprint um, or ha- just high investor footprint, let's just say it doesn't even have to be a formal VC. Um, it, it, it was just an adjustment for me because I am just I was just so used to shaking hands, relationship, um, going to dinners. You know, a lot of these deals are done by that. So so to me, it's like this weird net game of like, how many more meetings do you have to have to build up that net relationship that you would have gotten in an in-person scenario? So what happens, at least what I try to do with my, my fundraisers, after I got past the second, third meeting, I really needed to ask some questions to see where this VC was because they can't be taking more of my time if they're really not really interested in the business. so i had you know one question i had after our first meeting every first meeting i had within the vc this past time i would say something to the effect of "Uh, this has been great um can you tell me what was most exciting about what i said to you today and how they answered that question was in some ways very instructive of if i thought this is like likelihood that we get to diligence or not
0: well the yeah asking well looking for buying the signals of buying. And uh, exactly. so what What were a couple of those? I mean, what? What? what's something that you heard that made you think, okay, this person isn't just kicking the tires on the used car?
1: Yeah. So our first slide in our deck is a, is a stat from the Federal Reserve that shows that there's $630 billion of underutilized assets in corporate America right now. And so any investor, when I asked that question about exciting, any investor who said, it's exciting to solve that issue, I thought was seeing the vision that I have for the company. Any investor who was down at the level of like, conversion charge of a SaaS product and like, you know, you know, know, resale opportunity, extension opportunity, they're literally not thinking of the right business model, even though that's our business model today, they're not thinking about if we could take 10% of $630 billion, right, from a transactions perspective. So like that was one clue and one thing I used to hear. The other is, um, you know, we have a lot of great logos. Uh, we, we we had raised about one point six million dollars total in the four years of the business to that to this raise in February. So if they looked at, hey, you're working with these companies and you've been able to get there with very low burn and low and low capital uh, need. That was also a clue that they understand, like, if we just had a little bit more help, if we had a little bit more financial support, we could take some bigger risk. So those are kind of some of the two things um, that they would say that I would literally get a star on. And then the most important, I used to actually start, there's a column in my air table about how many stars they gave a VC after to the first meeting. The one that they got the most stars for is that they go, what are you looking for in an investor? And I always thought that that was a really interesting thing. In fact, there's a couple of meetings at the beginning, I wasn't even prepared to answer that question. But then I knew, you know, I knew that I was looking for someone who thought about SaaS innovation um, in a business model scenario, but also sustainability and understanding that it's not a marketing thing anymore. It's literally the biggest market opportunity uh, in the globe right now. The circular economy is $4.5 trillion uh, uh, opportunity. And so those are some of the things that I I would hear and kind of mark up as things that I would be interested in kind of working with them about. From the
0: outside looking in, I think that uh, you probably had a somewhat easy time getting investors to understand the problem you're trying to solve. I would imagine a lot of them probably worked at companies that had experienced that kind of stuff. Uh, the, the toughest pitches are to investors that don't get what you do. Mm-hmm. And that's like, when I talk to people that are creating like advanced AI solutions <laughs> and data, blah, blah, blah. And they're, you know, and you're sitting there talking to a bunch of people, they don't get it. And the, no. the thing is, is a, a confused mind almost always says no.
1: Yes. So absolutely. when it
0: comes to, so, so yeah, I would imagine that that, did you hear that a lot? Oh, I, this was a problem. I, this is a problem I've encountered firsthand. So I get it.
1: Literally one of the investors who unfortunately we couldn't include in the round just because it got oversubscribed, but the, the kind of way she tried to break our business down was she goes, okay, we have a hundred people working here. To your point before, they have computers. And she just went through a use case. And I was just like, yep, yep, yep. And she's like, got it. And and then she was like, okay, tell me about the market. So she really understood the problem. Pretty straightforward because it's, you know, when you can relate it to what you've done or either what you're doing today and how you would use the tool it's very, very, really easy to translate, even though she's not in our ICP, right? She's not a... a um, she's not one of our uh, people that we're pursuing right now, but it, that was super helpful. Um, but sometimes we just say like, think about Uber, think about the sharing economy, add a sustainability value prop to it and you got the circular economy. So it's really it's really like not a uh, Einsteinian business model or a thing like that. We're just trying to do the, the dirty work and build the technology and the workflows to actually make this work at scale
0: i think at the end the, the simplest ideas are the easiest to get funded the most straightforward to explain and you know like while there are fewer and fewer of those to wrap our arms around congratulations on Thank finding you. something new and interesting once once again with me today gary cooper gears the ceo and co-founder of Reaply. that's r-h-e-a-p-l-y.com there's a link in the show notes. Gary and his company are one of startup hustle's top Chicago startups make sure to go find that list that uh, that episode it's back there in the feed somewhere I can't I probably should know when and man <laughs> sometimes it's a blur to me a <laughs> uh, lot of great companies in Chicago I know we have we broadened our uh, we broadened our criteria a little bit on that one so <laughs> Uh Chicago's uh, dear and dear to me. I lived in Indianapolis for se- seven or eight years and used to go up there a lot. It's always kinda of, and the Cubs are the Cubs are my national league team. So <laughs> nice. as long as as long as they're not playing the Royals and i not in good shape and, and you gotta get rid of the White Sox. No one no one cares about it, right? So Maybe not in Chicago.
1: I, 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 you want to start a
0: fist fight. You want to start a fist fight in Chicago, <laughs> get held up about who's better, the, the yeah. Cubs or the White Sox. So not <laughs> sure who would win that fight either. <laughs> all right. So I end my episodes to start a Puzzle with founders freestyle. i say my episodes because I am not the only host of the show. Make sure you tune in on Tuesdays. Join Andrew Morgan's to talk all about e-commerce and Amazon. Tune in on Thursdays to Listen to the episodes by Lauren Conaway, the founder of Innovate Her. If you haven't had enough startup hustle at that point, did you hear that we started a TV show? Go on over to the YouTube and type in startup hustle. You'll see and learn all about it. You can see what we do at our businesses, as well as what some other fascinating founders are doing in and around their business. All right. So I said founders freestyle. I give my guests an opportunity to make some closing arguments Uh, Sometimes we leave stuff out. Sometimes we didn't talk about stuff enough. Sometimes we just want to give advice to other people that want to follow in our shoes. So as mentioned and as advertised, it's a freestyle. Gary, what would you like to say on your way out? On my way out, I want to say
1: we need more people starting businesses. This is the exact time that people should be starting ideas, taking them out of those journals, taking them out behind the tables and operationalizing them, even if that's just telling a friend about it. That's my first thing and my last thing would be start a business in climate. Um, the oncoming doomsday scenarios are not fiction. They are science, that's what we best believe and we need every smart brain thinking about how to make the only rock that I know that we can live on. I know Elon's working on Mars um, to figure out how we sustainably live our lives continually here. So start a company if you have an idea and if you can go work for or start a climate or clean tech company otherwise be well.
0: Yeah. And I agree. And thank you. I, I'm a big, I'm a big fan and supporter of all things sustainable. And before I close with my freestyle quick reminder that today's episode of Startup Hustle was brought to you by fullscale.io, helping you build software team quickly and affordably. A couple of things I took away from this episode is one, you started as a research scientist and became a tech founder. I dropped out of five colleges, dude. I'm like on the opposite end of the of the educational framework but neither one of us set out to be tech founders i think that very few people that i talked to at any point before they became one were like i'm just going to be a tech founder and i'm being serious it's it's like 10% and that might be high so when you see it, when you see a problem worth solving take a shot at it and that's some that's where the best businesses come from Along the way, make sure when you are trying to get people involved, that you clearly outline the benefits of what it is that you're doing. In Gary's case, I would imagine that companies look at that and they say, oh, we could pay this much a month, but my God, look at what we're going to save on equipment. That kind of business and those kind of pitches when given to users and buyers, if done well, you'll leave the room and they will say, man, we're kind of dumb if we don't use this now. So, you know, that's, that's another thing. And and I would also think that in, with a product like Gary's, that some of the investors are bound to become some of the stronger users and clients. And <laughs> will maybe even push that down the line to their other, Mm -hmm. Uh, portfolio companies. And who knows? I mean, this has been this has been one that's been waiting to get get solved for a while. That said, you're four or five years into this, there are still fresh and new ways to innovate and create businesses in and around what you do. And lastly, yes, we do need more people to start businesses. Uh, If you're sitting around and waiting for the right time, and I put the quote around the right time, because the right time never comes. If you're sitting there, if you tell yourself too long, that same line for too long, you are just making excuses. Gary, keep doing what you're doing. I love it, baby. Thank you. you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Yep.